My warning for today's episode is that this episode contains sexual assault and crimes committed against a child. Thank you for listening. I'm Haley. I'm Andy. And this is Dead Endings. off we discussed the deaths of mary joan marilyn dawn alice and now karen they found karen's body they have a plan to do a stakeout to try to catch a suspect on the idea that he or they will return to the scene of the crime they have a mannequin in the ditch and they are ready to go they're just watching So Sheriff Harvey and gang have their brilliant idea to do the stakeout. The couple who found Karen lived not far, and police essentially took over their house and used it as a headquarters for their top-secret operation. After getting the hesitant approval from the county prosecutor, the operation was a go. Six officers with walkie-talkies were staked in different spots around the fake body-slash-mannequin location. It was rainy, it was hot, there were mosquitoes, the officers were miserable, After a few hours, at 12.15 in the morning of Monday, July 28th, an officer stationed on top of a little hill across from the gully spotted someone. A white man jogging appeared to be running down the street. Hmm. Yeah, he's just jogging. That was good writing on my part. (laughs) (laughs) But he was running down an isolated dirt road at 12.15 in the morning. Just a guy jogging. Oh, yeah. 12.15 in the morning. (laughs) Just like... Man, I really couldn't sleep. I could go down. I could really go for a fucking jog. <laughs> down this dirt road where they found a body yesterday. But nobody knows that. I know, but it's just the coincidence hmm. is weird. What it is. So now it seems like there hadn't been much discussed between the officers about the plan other than we're going to do a stakeout. We're going to catch the guy and it's going to be awesome. So, so they didn't even be like, what if there was a guy? Yeah, I don't <laughs> think they communicated that because they see the guy and then chaos just erupts (laughs) let's get into it so like walkie talkies are malfunctioning they're like not connecting with each other no one is quite sure what to do they're like do we chase him down like do we just are we just hey like i see somebody and they're like yeah i heard somebody and then they're like what do we like what do we like hey can you hear me can you hear me? And just nothing is happening. <laughs> I feel like maybe they should check the walkie-talkies beforehand. So while police are scrambling out from their hiding spots, trying to figure out where the jogger has gone, they hear a car engine start up down the road and see the sight of headlights moving away up the hill. The jogger was gone. Probably because you hear random fucking voices in the Can forest. you imagine <laughs> running and then just all of a sudden you just hear like walkie-talkies and like people being like, ah, and it's like pitch black and you're like, ooh, no, thank you. Nope. Police yeah. searched the roads nearby looking for the vehicle that could have possibly been on the road, but none of the officers had seen the vehicle, so they didn't know what vehicle they were there looking for. There wasn't even an for officer any just car. stationed on the, like. No, like they didn't have like people stationed at like ends, you know what I mean? They should yeah. have like sectioned off an area and be like, here's our starting point, here's our ending point yeah let's cover the whole strip they were just right near the mannequin just watching yeah (laughs) yeah it's i genuinely i don't think that they they were just like this is gonna be so cool they were they expected to be smarter than the possible killer or random dragger (laughs) yeah the stakeout had been a bust and when the public heard what happened they were neither happy nor impressed (laughs) 
Understandable. Pressure was building to a breaking point for the police to get this case solved, and a tale was ordered on John Norman Collins. Officers stayed outside John's apartment all day Sunday waiting for the sight of him. Around 5 p.m. on Sunday, Johnny's roommate, Arnie, came out of the building and was like, hey, John's not here. He's visiting his mom in Centerline. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's just, he's just, he's just like, he just knew. Like, Sorry. they were here questioning him the other day. Like, he's not here. Can you go away? <laughs> police in Centerline were notified to place John under surveillance, and word came back from Centerline police that John was outside his mother's house thoroughly washing his Oldsmobile cutlass. The outside, the inside, the trunk. John arrived back in Ypsilanti around 11 that night, and the officers brought him in for questioning. Because they were like, this is weird. Yeah, that is weird. The interrogation didn't get very much information from John. The police pretty much went, so you were riding around picking up chicks? And John was like, meh, I was riding around, and if there were chicks, there were chicks. (laughs) Like, that was his vibe. (laughs) Smooth. And the police were like, aren't aren't they scared of the murderer? How do you convince them to go with you? And John was like, some do, some don't. I like to tell them that I'm not the murderer. (laughs) (laughs) I tell them I'm not. I tell them they can do what they want. (laughs) He told police that on Wednesday, on the Wednesday that Karen went missing, he had paid a bill at a bike shop around 1 and then went and got food at a restaurant and was there till 2.30. And after that, he was teaching his friend how to ride motorcycles all evening. He ended his night by spending 30 minutes to an hour stopping by his uncle's house to feed the dog around 9.30, which I tried to find where the uncle's house is and, like, compared to all the other locations, and I couldn't figure out where his address is. That's... Which, to be fair, the uncle is, like, a police officer with children. So he probably wants that to be, you know, a yeah. secret. It's understandable. So, but it had to be close, like... Yeah, yeah if you think like so. Yeah, a 20-minute drive or something. Yeah, within, like, a certain radius. Yeah. John promised to do a polygraph the next morning. When John got home after his questioning, his roommate Arnie was still up and asked John what had happened. John said they were questioning him about the Karen girl. John then reminded Arnie that they had gone out riding together that Wednesday around 2.30. Arnie thought it was later than that, and John was like, no, Arnie, you silly. It was 2.30. You can't forget that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Instead of coming in to do the polygraph the next morning, like he had promised, John lawyered up. (laughs) When Daniel Ike returned to work after his vacation and was notified by his superiors that his nephew was now the main suspect in the murders, Corporal Ike was like, ah, that's not good. (laughs) And proceeded to explain the irregularities and missing items in his house after his nephew had been dog-sitting. Good. That evening, John's Aunt Sandra, unaware of the developments in the case, got a hold of John to ask him what he'd been doing in the house while they were gone. John acted confused, and Corporal Lyke picked up another line in the house and cut into the conversation. He asked John if he'd spray-painted anything in the basement, and John said no. Sandra said some things were missing and asked if John had thrown anything out, and John was annoyed and told her no, he hadn't. He hadn't been in the house, and the conversation ended. Corporal Lyke went down to his basement that night and carefully started to scrape up some of the spray paint and he found some slightly wet gunk underneath that looked like blood. Uh. The next day, he reported what he found, and the crime center planned to send a crime lab technicians over to the Lyke house and sent Corporal Lyke home to meet the lab techs. So when Lyke got home, his wife happened to be on the phone with John. Sandra still had no idea that John was the suspect in these murders and said that John was asking if we'd figured out the paint in the basement and, like, whispered that the crime lab was coming over. Sandra blurted it out to John on the phone. Oh, damn it, Sandy. 
And John asked them to call him and let him know how it goes, and he ended the call. Mm-hmm. Corporal, like, finally explained to Sandra what was happening, because he hadn't, he still hadn't told her. I mean... But I, it's like, you would think you would get that I'm, like, whispering that a crime lab is coming over. And she's just like, what? She's like, a crime lab's coming over? <laughs> oh, okay. my goodness. So the crime lab determined that the substance under the paint that the corporal like had pulled up was varnished from a project that Daniel had worked on a few weeks earlier. But other evidence of blood was found in the basement. There were bits of blood splatter found in different locations around the basement, and there were marks on some of the pipes as if something had rubbed against them, like ropes or cord. Hmm. There were many short blonde hairs from the haircuts that Sandra had given her three sons before the vacation. She had swept the hair clippings up into the corner before she left. The hairs were just like the ones found on Karen's underwear. Damn. John was picked up on Thursday, July 31st by his uncle and two other state troopers. He was charged and booked for the murder of Karen. Which, John's mom and siblings were furious with their uncle that he was there when John was arrested. But I realistically think it was probably to look out for John. Yeah, like... Okay, I don't want you to run. I don't want you to fight them. Like, I'm here with you. It's less scary. I'm a familiar face. But also maybe to look out for himself because, I mean, a crime did obviously happen in in his his home. home. Yeah. Yeah. So after the news of John's arrest hit the media, the Michigan State Police received a call from the Monterey County Prosecutor's Office. Salinas, California had an unsolved murder that was very similar to Karen's. Roxy Ann Phillips was born March 21, 1952 to Russell and Sylvia Phillips. She was followed two years later by a younger brother. Shortly after Roxy was born, her parents moved from New Mexico to Oregon. Her father had served for the army during World War II, and her mother worked as a social worker. Her parents' marriage didn't work out, though, and by the time Roxy was in high school, they had divorced, and her father had remarried. In 1969, Roxy was 17 years old. She and her family planned a trip for her during the summer of 1969. Roxy would travel from her home in Milwaukee, Oregon, to Sacramento to visit with some members from her mom's family, and from there, Roxy would travel to Salinas, California, and stay with their neighbors from Oregon who had recently moved to Salinas. After spending some time in Salinas, Roxy would continue south down to the coast to Lompoc to visit some family members on her dad's side of the family. And there, her dad and stepmom would meet with her, and they'd continue together to Los Angeles and spend some time at Disney World before returning home. That sounds like one cool-ass trip. It's beautiful. I've been down the coast a little bit, and it's it's so pretty. So Roxy had made it to Sacramento and had arrived in Salinas. Six blocks from the house she was staying in, she met a girl her age who was from Texas. The girl was visiting the area to spend time with her older sister, and the two girls became friends and were spending their days together walking around and exploring the area that was new to both of them. Which sounds awesome. Yeah. On June 29th, Roxy and her friend had been hanging out, and her friend left to walk home on her way, a silver car pulled up next to her. They talked for a minute, and the guy introduced himself as John, told her he was a college student from Michigan, and offered to give her a ride home. Roxy's friend climbed in, and John drove her home and dropped her off. Okay. He spoke with the friend and the friend's sister for a little bit about his love for motorcycles and his plans to graduate college and become a teacher, and he told the girl that he'd hoped he'd see her again. Roxy's friend called her that evening to tell her about the encounter with the older college man and her hopes that she would see him again, too. Her friend never saw John again, and she never saw Roxy again, either. 
The next day, June 30th, Roxy got up and dressed in a red romper that had little white flower patterns on it with a matching cloth belt. She gathered her things in a straw tote, slipped on some white sandals, and left the house telling her hosts that she would be back by four or five because she was going to be babysitting the children that evening. She was going to mail a letter and then visit with her friend. A neighbor saw Roxy heading out of the house a little after noon that day, and when Roxy didn't come home for dinner, her hosts called the friend's house looking for Roxy. Roxy wasn't there and hadn't been there all day. Next, they called Roxy's parents in Oregon to see if they had heard from her all that day, but they hadn't. The next call was placed to the police. Her mom traveled to Salinas immediately and was all over the news asking for help to find her daughter. She was going all over neighborhoods and handing out flyers, and meanwhile, Roxy's dad drove down the coast to Salinas, stopping at every hippie dropout spot he could find to see if Roxy had possibly run away. The dedication that these parents have for their child is so heartwarming. A witness came forward saying they had seen Roxy in the passenger seat of a silver car driven by a young man with dark hair the day she went missing, and Roxy's friend told police of the John she had met the day before with the silver car. On July 13th, almost two weeks after Roxy went missing, two teens were searching for fossils near a public dumping area in Carmel, California, which is where my dad was born. Hey. Anyway, the teens kept catching a whiff of this horrendous smell that they assumed was a dead animal, but pretty soon they found the source of the smell. Underneath a large California pine tree in a thick overgrowth of weeds and poison oak, they discovered a nude body wearing white sandals in a rough state of decomposition. There was shoulder-length blonde hair and a strip of cloth tied around the body's neck. Mm-hmm. The material was red cloth with a white flower pattern on it. No. The autopsy determined that the girl had been dead for two weeks and had been laying in the spot the entire time. She had died by strangulation that was so brutal it ruptured her larynx. She was identified through dental records as Roxy Ann Phillips. Her body was returned to Oregon on July 15th, and she was laid to rest there. In late June of 1969, John told his friends and family that he was going to spend some time in Canada. Instead, he and his friend Andrew illegally rented a travel trailer using a stolen license plate, fake names, and a good faith fee, which is where you pay a little bit and then you're going to pay the rest when you come back. And they headed out in John's silver Oldsmobile Cutlass, towing the trailer behind towards California, where Andrew had family in Salinas. After trying to sell the trailer in Salinas and coming and committing other minor crimes, the pair abandoned the trailer in an alley behind the residence of Andrew's parents. <laughs> Couldn't sell the trailer, so probably they just because they knew it was stolen. People obviously knew it was stolen. Yeah. When Michigan police got that call from California, they immediately sent out forensic investigators to search the trailer that had been seized and held for evidence, but it had been thoroughly cleaned. Detectives in California thought of the poison oak that was growing rampant around Roxy's body and took a chance canvassing clinics and doctor's offices in the area. And because HIPAA wasn't a thing at this point in history, (laughs) they discovered a doctor who ID'd a picture of John as someone he had treated recently with a case of poison oak. Thank you for not having HIPAA at this moment. That was like, that's That didn't happen until the 90s. Because at first I'm like, the doctors were just like, yeah, I treated this person for this. I'm like, that's a huge violation. Not then. (laughs) So I Googled it and it wasn't. John's cutlass was thoroughly searched as well, and wedged under one of the seats there was a small scrap of fabric, red with white details. When compared to the cloth belt tied around Roxy's neck, the threads of the fabric matched exactly in width and color, as well as the thread pattern, which had double threads going across in one direction and a single thread going the other way. Got him! When John's apartment was searched, police found a brown sweater in his closet that had on the shoulder 22 pubic hairs embedded among the fibers. 
which is crazy to me and bums me out a little that samples weren't taken during the autopsy, but they had Roxy Phillips' body exhumed so that they could collect pubic hairs from her body for comparison, as well as blood samples and fingerprints. Like, maybe if somebody is murdered, get all of that situated before you bury them so that the family doesn't have to to go through that. Yeah. I don't have a lot of faith in comparison of pubic hairs for the sake of identification, but supposedly the sample from Roxy matched the hairs in John's sweater. Okay. Police theorized that John tossed Roxy's nude body over his shoulders after he killed her, and when he was taking her into the dump, her pubic bone was, like, rubbing into his shoulder and, like, embedded the hairs into the sweater. Mm. But I'm also just like, why weren't you washing your clothes? Because he's gross. You're a male college student. Wash your clothes. There was a human blood found in John's car as well, and after a manhunt, John's friend Andrew was located, and it was determined that he had no involvement in the murders, but he did have to face other charges of robbery and whatnot. Yeah. So a little bit about John. John was born on June 17, 1947, in Ontario, Canada, to Richard and Loretta Chapman. He was the third and last child that the couple had. Richard worked as a bus driver before serving in World War II, during which Richard lost one of his legs. When he came back, the relationship between him and Loretta wasn't the same. Loretta apparently struggled with the loss of Richard's leg, which seems kind of shallow. Yeah, it does, because I bet he's he's missing the loss of his leg, too. too. Like, he, he probably is bummed out about it, too. But she also had issues with PTSD that he was struggling from, which at the time was just called battle fatigue. So Richard and Loretta divorced when John was only one years old, and she asked Richard not to have any contact with the children. That's sad. When John was two, Loretta took the three kids and headed to Michigan where she had family in Centerline. She met a mechanic named William Collins, and the two got married when John was about five. William adopted Loretta's three kids. William also drank a lot and was not a great father figure. Rumors have it that he was violent. And but that, he adopted them. Yeah. <laughs> so it's fine. It's not fine. <laughs> Just to clarify, it's not actually fine. William and Loretta's marriage only lasted about three to four years, which is also crazy to think that, like, this is his, like, John Norman Collins was just what he was growing up as because Mm -hmm. his mom spent, like, three years married to somebody who wasn't his dad whose last name was Collins. That would be so bizarre. That is, yeah, that is a little odd. So Loretta found herself a single mom to three kids and took jobs as a waitress to support her family. She was able to work at higher class restaurants and make good enough tips to get by, but this meant that her shifts coincided with when her kids were home from school. So her kids were taken care of by her, but that meant that she wasn't really around, so they had to fend for themselves. Yeah. Like, she could provide food, but they had to, like, make it. Yeah. John attended a Catholic school just a few blocks from their home. In the 1950s, a lot of neighbors had a lot to say about this woman who didn't have a husband and worked nights at restaurants and supported herself because this didn't usually happen. John did well in school and went to Central in Mount Pleasant for a little while, but then transferred to Eastern to be closer to home in Centerline. There were a few signs early on during John's college years that he was a criminal. Other people's belongings and money tended to go missing wherever John went, and at the time of his arrest, he was 22 years old. He was majoring in English and was 20-some credits away from graduating. His plans were to teach older elementary school kids. He was good at sporting. Because whenever a young white man commits a horrible crime, we have to talk about how good at sports he is. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. A lot of people in John's life were shocked by his arrest. They said that John dated regularly and seemed like a regular guy. 
He was obsessed with his car and his motorcycles, and girls seemed kind of unimpressed with him because of his flirty nature with other girls combined with his serious and moody personality and his tendency to put cars and bikes over whoever he happened to be dating at the time. There's not a whole lot else known about John's life. Very few people close to him and his family spoke out after his arrest. John's mother and siblings stood by him through the charges and the trial. His mom visited him every chance she had and was at every hearing leading up to the trial. And she often showed up with random family friends that were usually pretty young women. I think in an attempt to be like, see, there's all these normal young girls who are here to support him. He could never hurt them. That unsettles me. There's obvious evidence that her son was, he he murdered and he, he brutalized these girls but she's just still trying to like it's put her him son. it is her son and i feel so conflicted but i'm also like I know. it's gross it is so california indicted john norman collins for the murder of roxy and phillips and john's defense lawyer was able to get the charges withheld until the trial for the michigan murders to prevent that being used against him during the michigan trial for karen's death John's lawyer also argued that the testimony of Joan from the wig shop shouldn't be included in the trial because of the moment when Mathewson showed Joan the Polaroid of John. The lawyer argued that it tainted her testimony because it could have predisposed her to identifying John later in a lineup. The judge determined that Joan's testimony would be allowed, though. Good. I'm so glad it would be be allowed. To be fair, I do agree with John's lawyer in that, just from, like, an actual... I think John is guilty. Oh, yeah. But looking at it from, like, the legalities, I think that's fair to be, like, you were showing them pictures before you had any actual lineup. You didn't show a lineup of photos. You showed them this one photo. Yeah, I can see that point of view. And I knew that Michigan didn't have the death penalty, but something I learned while researching the trial was that Michigan was the first state to prohibit the death penalty, which I personally think I like. We talked about we each have different... It's such a complex issue to have a simple opinion on. I'm kind of blunt with it, I suppose. I don't know. I it's But, like, if we put animals down because they hurt children to put people down because they hurt children and other people. That's how I feel. My struggle is whether or not the government should be able to determine or any like just system should be able to determine that somebody's life is over. And that's that's fair. But I do acknowledge like the emotional side of wanting that. And then yeah. sometimes I think that it's important for what the victim's family want. Mm-hmm. That that should be like factored in. But... While John was facing the possibility of life in prison in Michigan, if he did manage to escape, there was the chance that he would be extradited to the state of California, where they do have the death penalty and the charges he would be facing there, he would be able to possibly get the death penalty. Yeah. So the family members of the other victims in the communities of Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti were very upset that charges were not being brought against John for the other murders. Some speculated that the prosecution and police lacked evidence to charge John with the other crimes or that the state wanted to avoid the cost of trial for a multiple murder case, but the prosecutor said that he was holding back so that if John were ever released for any reason, like if he appealed, he could turn around and charge him with another murder. The prosecutor, who I've mentioned a few times in passing, was William Delhi, who retired from the prosecutor's office in 1992 and has the record for the longest-serving prosecutor in Michigan history having worked for the office for 36 years. That's such a long time to dedicate your life to seeing so many horrible things Mm -hmm. and, like, making sure that there's justice found in them all. I have a lot of respect for that, but I also have a lot of sympathy for him because that's got to do so much damage to the psyche. 
And I do, he mentioned that he had a previous case where he charged a person for all of the crimes at one time. And then something happened where the guy was able to get out and they couldn't charge him again because of double jeopardy. And he was like, if I had held off on some of those charges, I could okay. have fixed this. Fixed it. Yeah, so so he, he wants to make sure that John isn't getting out. I like that. I can agree with that. So the jurors were chosen after five weeks of jury selection. 294 potential jurors were interviewed and seven men and seven women served on the jury, and it was ordered that they be sequestered during the trial. I think two were being kept as um, alternates, mm-hmm. just in case. And there were some interesting points during the trial process. So the defense questioned Karen's roommates in regards to her underwear and shaving habits in order to argue that the hair found on her underwear could have come from other sources than from the like home. And Karen would wash her underwear by hand in the bathroom sink where she and the other girls that she lived with, they would trim their bangs in front of the mirror like most people do. Okay. So the defense was trying to say, how do we not know that the hair isn't from that? But realistically, a girl isn't going to put underwear on that's covered in a bunch of tiny hairs. Yeah, because it's going to be really freaking uncomfortable. Like, that's when you rinse out the sink beforehand. That would be like, if you found the underwear in her apartment, you could be like, oh yeah, maybe it's from this and not this. But she was wearing the underwear that day. She's not going to do that. Yeah. Dr. Robert Hendricks was called to give testimony about Karen's autopsy, and even though he was present for the autopsies of all the Michigan murders, he was barred from saying anything about any other case other than Karen's. He testified that the burns on Karen's chest could have been made from a household cleaner like ammonia, which Sandra Like had said was missing from their basement after the vacation. During the trial, Sandra testified about the missing items, but the defense asked her to read her list of missing items that she'd written out for the police in October of 1969. She didn't list ammonia or an empty detergent box in that list. That's I don't know why. Why? Yeah, that's odd. Seven women were called as witnesses for the prosecution. The women testified that on Wednesday that Karen went missing, John Norman Collins had approached them in the area in the time leading up to Karen disappearing. They each placed a pin on a map to show where they were and when they were and when they came across John. This was able to establish that John was riding around in the vicinity of Karen at the time while actively looking for girls to pick up. And it was like a very good visual. Yeah. Another woman who John had been seeing at the time that Karen was murdered testified that John and she had plans that Wednesday to go to the beach together, but John stood her up without any notice. Hmm. Arnie Davis was John's best friend who lived in the same house as him, and Arnie testified that he had gone with John to take care of the Likes dog the night after John had been questioned. When they returned home, John had taken a knife wrapped in a rag out from under the seat of his bike and took it into the house. John had him carry a dark-colored blanket from the trunk of his car while John carried a large box, which Arnie said looked like it contained women's shoes, some bits of clothing, and a burlap handbag. A little later, John left the house with the items and came back 30 minutes after without any of those items. John also gave Arnie a hunting knife and asked him to hold on to it for him. No, thank you. Arnie had also testified that he, when he met John two years earlier, John drove a bluish gray DeSoto, similar to the vehicle that had been seen by Mary Fletcher. Hmm. Arnie's testimony about the knife in the box was dismissed, though, because Karen hadn't been stabbed, so the knife wasn't linked to her case. And none of the other possible items were taken from her. So this was a link to the other cases, which they weren't allowed to discuss in court. None of Karen's fingerprints were found in the lighthouse basement or garage. Weirdly, though, also none of John's fingerprints were found in the lighthouse basement or garage. 
And if he's there taking care of the dog, they should have been. Yeah, those fingerprints would be there. Almost like he cleaned very thoroughly for some reason. Which, with the, like, trailer in California, that was thoroughly cleaned. With his car, he had tried to thoroughly clean it, but he missed the, like, little piece of fabric. Yeah. When it came to hair evidence, each side had their own hair expert testify that the other expert was wrong and they were right and the hair clippings either matched the ones at the like home or it was completely impossible to tell because it's hair evidence and it's... It's very tricky to match. It's not super viable. Yeah. After deliberating for a few days on Wednesday, August 19th, 1970, the jury came back finding John Norman Collins guilty of the murder of Karen Sue Bynuman. He was sentenced to life in prison. Karen's sister Barbara was there to hear the verdict and called her parents back in Grand Rapids to tell them as soon as she left the courthouse. All John had to say at his sentencing was that he did feel that everyone had done what they could to give him a fair trial and that he had never met or given a ride to Karen and that he hoped someday this travesty of justice would be corrected. (laughs) California planned to begin extradition process of John to face trial for the murder of Roxy Phillips. Michigan agreed to extradite John under the conditions that the state of California pay the costs of transportation and return John back to Michigan after the trial to serve out the remainder of the Michigan sentence. In 1972, the Monterey County Prosecutor's Office decided against continuing with the process of extradition, citing reasons such as lack of scientific evidence and the backlog of murder cases. John and his lawyer have tried multiple times over the years to appeal his case. At one point, John tried to get transferred to a prison in Canada, saying that he was born there and trying to argue that he had family there, which technically is true, but he spent his entire life in the U.S. and was given... He became a citizen of the U.S. at age five. So he's a U.S. citizen. And he'd been there since he was two. And he actually had more family in Michigan. So he's been in trouble for drug trafficking, gambling, and possibly conspiring with other prisoners to escape. (laughs) Trying to get his grandmother's social security number, having all sorts of weird contraband and excessive items. At one point, having 37 porno magazines, all sorts of things like bags of tacks, a sewing machine, a TV, bits of metal road maps, a Miami Dolphins jersey that was reported stolen by another prisoner. He was like, yeah, no, that that prisoner gave it to me before he left. And the prisoner was like, no, I didn't. That's my jersey. The prisoner got his jersey back. (laughs) Good Um, thing he got his jersey back. (laughs) John sounds like a kleptomaniac a little bit. But it turned out that John was also running his own prison shop, which is why he kept having excessive amounts of... While in prison, John changed his last name to Chapman, which was his biological father's last name. John is given a handful of interviews and statements. Sometimes he cries, sometimes he yells. Supposedly at one point when being questioned about Don Basum, he screamed, I didn't kill that baby. In letters that he wrote to a much younger cousin in Canada, he said that he did meet Karen Bynuman, but that the events didn't transpire the way people think. He claims that he and Alice had gone on a date the day that she died and that they had consensual sex. He also claims that his roommate Arnie killed both Karen and Alice, which is just... I... John's innocent. He's just giving girls rides and hooking up with them. And then his roommate keeps coming in out of nowhere and murdering them. Apparently. But if that was so true, then why was he so obsessed with making sure that there wasn't any sort of evidence in his possession or like... Like in his car? Yeah, Because he doesn't want it pinned on him. Like, I, I don't know. Like, why wouldn't he just be like, it was Arnie? Yeah. And then, like, easily try to frame him, since they were roommates, be like, hey, he has this trunk of stuff. 
that hunting knife that he asked Arnie to hold on to. He'd be like, that was Arnie's. Arnie's just saying that he had me. Yeah, there's so many ways. Yeah. I think which is just his attempt to get a new trial. He's just... But yeah, that's not what happened. These cases are still technically open, and it seems like police are investigating and looking into some of them, because when Jane Mixer's murder was linked to Gary Lederman by DNA, that opened the possibility that maybe some of these murders weren't committed by John. John has has been given the opportunity many times to give his DNA to be tested against evidence in the cases, since he says that he's innocent. He's refused every time to give his DNA. To me, that's just, like, literally... Because he knows it'll match at least some of them. Yeah. But because the other cases never went to trial, the public didn't really get to hear the other evidence that they had against John when it came to the other women and girls. So some of the things were that in the case of Joan Shell, the second victim whose roommate watched her get into the car with three young men, there was another witness that insists that they saw Joan that night. There were three people who say they saw Joan around 11.30ish, which would have been like 30 minutes after getting into the car, walking with a man fitting John Norman Collins' description Hmm. near John and Joan's apartments, which, remember, were right across the street from each other. This opens, like, a whole other new world of possibilities because in my head it's like she got in the car with them, but I never considered she could have gotten out. Yeah, like, maybe she realized, like, her friend realized, they're like, you're going in the wrong direction. Yeah, let me out. This is creepy. Yeah. Or we talked about, like, maybe they were like, oh, yeah, we're going, but we're going to stop and pick up this person and this person and go to this person's house to get, like, alcohol first. Yeah. And, like, you've hung out with people where you think that you have a clear-cut plan and then you end up at somebody else's house and you're like, are we, like, what are we doing? Yep. And we just ended up riding along with them and being annoyed and bored the whole time. So there's a chance she's like, never mind, I'm out. Yeah. What if she did get out of the car? And what if she was heading back to her apartment? John happened to see her and was like, oh, I could give you a ride. And she would recognize him at least a little because he lives right across the street. A woman that John was dating at the time of Dawn Basin's murder lived across the street from Dawn. And she said that the night that Dawn went missing, John came to her house and seemed disheveled and stressed. And after her arrest, after his arrest... Dawn's family were absolutely adamant that John had come to the luncheon after Dawn's funeral. Oh. So there's a lot more information in the book Terror in Ypsilanti by Gregory Fournier. And if you're interested in that, it's definitely a good book. Um, The last piece of evidence against John Norman Collins that I just feel is like the mother of all. You're guilty. Like, you did this. When Mary Flesher was killed... It was noted that missing from her body and her belongings was a medallion necklace that she had brought from the trip to Expo 67 that she'd went on the month before her murder. And it was new. She was wearing it all the time. She loved it. And guess what was found on top of John Norman Collins' dresser when he was arrested for Karen Bynaman's murder? The medallion. Yeah, an Expo 67 medallion necklace. Yeah. I mean, every murderer wants to keep pieces of trophies, right? Yep, and there's clear evidence that he was doing that with, like, cutting off pieces of the shirt. Ah, oh, just, damn. After Marilyn's death, each person seemed to have, like, fabric jammed in their mouth, but that one college student said that he heard somebody, like, cry out or make a sound, and I almost wonder if, like, Marilyn had made a sound, and so from then on, he just made sure that they were, that it was, like, muted or quiet. I mean, that would make sense, learning from your past murders. That is the story of the ending of Mary, Joan, Marilyn, Alice, Dawn, Karen, and Roxy. 
And this is the end of another Dead Endings. Thank you for joining. Yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs> you can follow us on Instagram at Dead Endings Podcast. You can like our Facebook page, Dead Endings Podcast. Or you can send us an email at deadendingspodcast at gmail.com. All of the links to which you can find on our website, deadendings.com. Thank you.